Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury's Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. Today we're back with Robert Haar. Hi, Bob. Hey, hey, Eric. Thanks for joining us again for our second episode. Thank you again for having me. If we could take you back to your current firm, could you talk more about your team? I know you have seven mm-hmm. lawyers. Who else do you have on your team as far as paralegals or investigators? And Really, it's a, we've, we don't use investigators, and it's conceivable that you might have an invest, a, a case, particularly on the criminal side, where you might hire an investigator for that particular case. It's relatively rare. Again, it depends upon the circumstances. But we have one paralegal who's terrific and really good with all the electronic stuff because obviously we have big document cases. And other than that, it's us. How often would it be that a lawyer at your firm wants to talk to a witness, but you're thinking that witness might say something really good and then we try to retract it later or or maybe I should have the paralegal talk to the witness. Oh, no. I Generally, it's the lawyers dealing with the witnesses. And when you're talking about the world of civil litigation, obviously a lot of that is through depositions. In terms of contacting other people, you've got to be sensitive to the ethical rules in terms of who you can and can't contact. Uh, on the criminal side, I think your interest is seeing who's willing to talk to you. And that's where the persuasion comes in. Obviously, you run into people that don't want to be involved, don't want to talk to you. And that's the challenge of criminal defense work. You don't have the same mechanisms, particularly in in federal cases, to compel people to talk to you. There's no right to depositions. So you're the mercy of the cooperation of people you contact. And understandably, they often don't want to get involved. And whatever discovery you're provided by the government, being a defense, criminal defense lawyer, particularly in the federal system, now there's some right to depositions in the state system, but in in the federal system is a real challenge. I think one of the biggest challenges because you don't have the same mechanisms for discovery. And the other team, the U.S. government teams, got a lot of people and resources and agencies, agents to assist them. And you don't have that. I've always had admiration for criminal defense lawyers generally and for a variety of reasons, including the specific challenges you have in those types of cases in terms of representing your client. Do you ever try to lock them in a little more with a, a signed statement or a I was just video, video thing. tape? Yeah, what? Oh, yeah. If, you can, if, you can, if you've got a witness, you can get them to sign a statement for you. Yes, you try to do that because... Uh, you won't be surprised to hear that stories sometimes change. Yeah, we see that where they actually gave a deposition under oath. <laughs> That's right. In recent years, there's been less and less of of the white-collar investigations, I think because so many resources are being devoted to the street crime and the gun cases and that. I know a lot of people in the U.S. Attorney's Office here are assigned to the Violent Crime Task Force and Understandably, U.S. attorneys' offices are adapting to what they perceive to be 
the biggest challenges in their community at the time. What is your A game where you really want to talk to somebody and they don't want to talk to you? And do you talk about justice or how do you get the conversation I, I, started? I don't know if there is a script, particularly with the white collar stuff. It, it's not as much an issue. But I think when you're trying to get anyone to talk to you, whether it's in a criminal case or a civil case, oftentimes there might be a relationship with your client. And you talk about the importance of, of knowing all the facts, that it's important to your client. And if there's a relationship there, that often will open more doors than anything else. How do you deal with what many of us deal with now with the deluge of paper and documents? It's not even paper sometimes, it's PDFs. How do you keep on top of the a um, lot of this stuff. Everybody thought with all this electronic stuff, there'd be less paper. There seems to be a lot more because there's a lot of more recorded conversations, either by way of email or text messages. And you need document management systems. I don't know how else you do it. We use Relativity. I'm not making a commercial plug here. But you have to have document management systems because we have cases now 50,000 documents, and particularly in, in complex commercial litigation, you may be talking about events that are part of the story that occurred over four, five, six, seven years. And that's a lot of paper, and that's a lot of history. And so you have to have some kind of document management system. And normally what you do, you have those documents. They'll be loaded in the system. I'll do a first round of annotation in terms of getting the dates. You'll get some basic descriptions of what the document's about. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure there's a shortcut other than to click through those documents and get a yeah. sense, build your own chronology, and get an understanding of what happened when. And then you're in a position to call through it and identify those facts that are critical to the story. I like to view things chronologically because that's how you see the relationship between events. Because there may be three or four different subplots going on at the same time. And there may be something happening in one subplot that influences what's going on in another. And the way you capture those relationships is by looking at it chronologically and seeing what was going on at that time in these various aspects of the story. For those not familiar with these document management systems, is that a program? Yes. You have a license to use. And and don't walk me down the road here on the details of relativity, because that's why we got a really good paralegal. It's a cooperative system in the sense that you're dealing with them to help with respect to loading and setting up the systems and things of that nature. I know, John, if you use that or if... I'm not sure which one we use, but we have most of the cases I'm working have. 30,000 is on the low end of the documents that we have. Yeah. Product, design stuff. Our big issue is... When we request documents, we usually get way, way more than we request on purpose, and 90% of them are just not relevant. We'll have a car case where we get the owner's manual for set, different models even <laughs> with documents. But I agree with you. We There's no substitutes. You've got to look at the documents. You can have somebody put them in the in order that's more manageable or subject matter or chronological. I always do the chronological and sometimes subject matter. I look at them. I look at the documents. I, there's no, no, no way around it. Well, yeah. Sometimes, as John said, you might have a situation where you clearly know 
there's a substantial segment of these documents that can't conceivably have anything that's going to right. make a difference. And then that's easy. But for the cases we do, that's the rare case. Usually, like I said, it's a story. If it's a legal malpractice case, the representation may have gone on for some period of time. They may at various points have consulted other lawyers. And so that part of the story becomes relevant because you have to see was there indeed reliance on our client or reliance on somebody else? It helps if somebody else has looked at it. There's an annotation, and maybe you don't have to spend very much time with the document. You can get through get it fairly quick. quickly. But I, I don't think there's a substitute for ultimately looking at all the potentially relevant documents. Bob, back to the mention, the legal malpractice work that you do. And I'm thinking the those cases can go from A to Z in terms of practice areas. Yeah. Is there any area that you specialize in or that you don't handle? Or We have represented lawyers in legal malpractice claims involving criminal investigations, criminal defense in particular, securities, international arbitration, contempt proceedings, immigration, trademarks, trust in estates, patent prosecution, transactional matters. I can't think of an area... We haven't. I'm sure there are. It does force you to become conversant yep. in an area right. of law that you were not otherwise familiar with. And, and obviously, in terms of the elements of a malpractice case or a breach of fiduciary duty, that's a common factor in all of these cases. But no, we don't specialize in a particular type of legal malpractice case. In fact, we've had very few malpractice cases that are alike in terms of the context in which they arise. I think what we found is after the Great Recession, obviously a lot of investors had failed investments, and there's a tendency in that context to look for somebody to share the pain with, and oftentimes it's the lawyer who did the deal, so we've had more than one of those, but generally speaking, they're all different. I believe from our previous conversation, that you handle, you tend to handle malpractice defense for larger firms. Right? Generally speaking, yes, that most of our clients are, are the larger firms. And I'm assuming also those are complex, tend to be complex cases themselves. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm thinking you got a complex case involving a big firm. Somebody's going to lose occasionally on their trial or whatever. Something's going to go wrong on a big case. And then the loser, they get they, they might have the trial, they might have the appeal, and then the third bite of the apple might be, let's blame the lawyer. And in a complex case, it seems like Monday morning quarterbacking might be a temptation. Right. To say something went wrong, and so therefore someone must be to blame for that. It's the legal malpractice. It's referred to as the case within the case. Yes. And uh, and as a result of that, in, in legal malpractice cases, and I think maybe more than other some other types of cases, you have very big issues of causation and damages. You lost money in this investment. Was it really because of the lawyer or because it was a bad investment? Was it because of the legal work or because you didn't do the financial due diligence? And so causation and damages become big issues in legal malpractice cases for that reason. How often do these cases go to trial? Relatively rarely. It's 
a substantial number of these cases, because of those types of issues, are disposed of on motions, summary judgment in particular. I'm just imagining, I haven't handled anything mm. like that, but hoping that a jury will be able to follow what's going on in the underlying case and in this case. Is that a concern or how to boil it down into understandable oh, oh, terms? Oh, sure, as in any case. How do you simplify? How do you make it digestible? And that's a challenge in any case and when the legal malpractice case in particular. And obviously, it's a very sensitive context. Law firms obviously don't like seeing allegations that they did something wrong, however unfounded they might be. But yeah, that's the challenge we all have in terms of not just for the jury, but for a judge to get the story down in such a way that a motion that you have is comprehensible, let alone something that they can rule in your favor on. But that's part of what we do as lawyers. How often do you use focus groups or do you just do you brainstorm within your group? When we have a case which looks like it, it may be tried. Yeah, we knew, use mock juries, and I think we have found those very valuable. And John, I know you use some yes. use focus groups. Do you do the online stuff and in person, or we've generally done the in person stuff. Now, obviously, there was that period with COVID and everything else. Of course, during that period in COVID, cases weren't moving either. But you learn things. I remember, and we do it in other contexts too. I remember in a criminal case. For a variety of reasons, I, I, I just didn't like our chances, and I won't get into the aggravating factors because it might identify the case. But, but we had it, and we went to the the mock, and we had three different juries listening to it, and they all came back with acquittals. I thought, man, I, I, th I thought they'd have a problem with this case, so we ended up trying it and ended in acquittal. So. You learn things sometimes. Yep, yep. I, that was one of the cases that sticks out in my mind where I was really surprised. You watch them deliberate, and there'll be something that they focused on where you just scratch your head and wow. say, man, I didn't think that was going to be yeah. an issue. Yeah. Now we got to think about how to handle that. Yeah, so There's always something. And then, of course, there's the whole confidentiality issue. Some of the counties that we're in are small. And the cases are have been been in the news. So what I always do is I'll take the I'll pick a different county with similar mm. demographics or things like that. We had one focus group, and we changed the identity and all mm. of this. And one of the members of our focus group got on the phone and figured out where the case was somehow. I told everybody else yeah, it's pending in this county and it's going to trial in front of this judge on this date. And so we just ended it. We ended it and stuff. Well, we had a situation where we did a mock in a criminal case that was high visibility case and one of our mock jurors ended up talking to the press you got to explain that to the judge or judge there's something i need to tell you and uh, fortunately there was a change of venue so the jury pool was not selected from the area of this publication but man i talk about losing having a sleepless night i'm gonna have to explain to the judge do you change the identities in the presentation or do you use the real names the problem is, particularly if you're going to play excerpts of depositions yes. or things of that nature, it's very hard. And maybe there's something about the person that you want to make sure they know because you think it's an aggravating yes. circumstance. If it's a case that's gotten a fair amount of publicity, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to put together who you're thinking about. But yeah, normally I think you try to, so that 
they don't come in and say, oh, I know all about this case because I read about it, is to change the names or dis not disclose the names. But it's hard to do, particularly in a case that has any visibility at all. They all know what it's about. I can't imagine going to trial without doing some sort of focus group because, you know, what you're thinking, what we think about the case isn't what a lot of the jurors are thinking about. It's something completely different. Yeah, you always learn something. Could we circle back to legal malpractice? Mm -hmm. You've seen a lot. You've handled many of these cases. What are a couple main bas basic rules you would recommend or strategies for making sure we don't get sued in cases going forward? Where, does, where do firms tend to be more vulnerable to these cases? There are certain areas that tend to draw more legal malpractice cases than others. I mentioned, for example, some of the corporate work involving investors, high-risk investments, things of that nature. A state and trusts tends to be an area because sometimes you're talking about a lot of money and people with frustrated expectations and events such as sudden death that are unanticipated. So I think what's important is good communication and cooperation, and that runs both ways. It's not just the lawyer having good communication with the client, but the client having good communication with the lawyer. And, and I have a Miranda warning for attorney-client relationships where you're telling the client you're entitled to a lawyer whose advice you're going to follow. And if you're not going to follow my advice, you need to find a lawyer whose advice you will follow. And I think sometimes that becomes a problem. There are situations where lawyers should get out of the representation and stay in. And I think it's important to avoid situations where you have responsibility for a client, but no influence or control over them. That's a terrible spot for a lawyer to be in. And uh, so sometimes I think the problems develop because lawyers stay in situations where maybe looking at the surrounding circumstances, the lack of good communication from the client, the client's unwillingness to take your advice, they should get out and they don't. But again, communication both ways is obviously important. I sometimes run across potential clients who will tell me how the case is going to proceed. It's going to be a sure thing. And they will tell you they know all about how this is going to go and you're just going to be their servant and get it done. And I run from those cases. Oh, yeah. I'm wondering, I assume you come from, you encounter some very powerful personalities in the big organizations who might have that approach that they're going to tell you what's going to go. Yeah, and if that's the attitude that they have and that the attitude persists and it's clear to me that they're not listening, then that's not a situation I'm going to stay in. I just don't, you're certainly creating risk for yourself, but you're not doing the client any favors either. I remember a client in a, in a high-profile criminal investigation that was in such denial that I couldn't get any facts out of them. You wanted to get some background or whatever else, and they were so defensive, you'd get back, how would I know? They weren't providing you the information that, they, that you needed to defend them. And I just got to the point saying, look, I can't play 20 questions. I think here's your retainer, and I think you need to get different counsel. That person then did get different counsel, uh, ended up going to trial, getting a horrific sentence, and frankly, it all could have been avoided 
had they been willing to talk through the situation and take advice, there would have been a resolution that would have avoided all of those consequences, I'm convinced. But that's relatively rare. And you can't represent somebody if they're not communicating with you, if they're not sharing with you the facts, because you need to understand them, the good, bad, and ugly, to, uh, to adequately represent them. Could we talk about a few of your cases? You list many of these on your website. And I was just wondering, not in terms of telling war stories or we had a good result in this case, but maybe in terms of a unique sort of challenge you, you encountered in that case or a lesson learned in that case. We talked about the parallel proceeding issue and probably there were not more parallel proceedings than our representation in the reservoir collapse, the Tom Sock reservoir collapse, where you're dealing with, obviously it was a very high profile incident, I think arguably the largest environmental case in the state's history. And you had regulatory agencies that were involved. You had the state was involved. You had private lit litigants that were involved. And, uh, and so dealing with all those aspects of the case was uh, obviously was complicated. But it's what we were talking about before. You just need to think through, if we do this here, what are the implications with respect to some of the other cases? Both with respect to litigating the case and settling certain cases, that is an illustration of parallel proceedings. You mentioned you have regulatory agencies, you have mm -hmm. governmental, you have private. You, the amount of information, I can imagine half of your day might be answering phone calls, writing letters, trying to keep track. What is your way of keeping important things front and center and are documenting what's going on? And how do you do this in pen and paper, or do you just remember a lot of things, or how do you, and you need to coordinate with your team. I think you need to filter out what's important and what's not. One of the criminal cases I handled that, that got a, a, a lot of publicity involved the blues hockey player, and I would come in the morning, I'd have a stack of pink slips like this in terms of people who wanted to talk about it about or it. talk to me or whatever else. And uh, that was those, hire for murder case. Yeah, yeah, and uh, a, a attempted murder for hire. It was the allegation, and uh, you've just got you got to filter it out. You got to decide. Look, there's some calls that aren't going to get answered. There's a because I got to focus on what's important here, and there's a lot of distraction when you're dealing with uh, cases, high publicity cases, because you're dealing with the press. And you talk about a lesson in terms of high publicity cases. Handling that case, which was over in federal court in East St. Louis, like I said, I'd get back to the office and I'd have a stack of phone messages an inch or more thick. On the one hand, obviously, you've got a situation where the press is getting a lot of information from the prosecution about the case and putting your client in the worst possible light. And so you feel compelled to say something, and you, you have an obligation, I think, in, in, to, to say something in those situations to counterbalance that. What I learned in that case is the best way to handle it was after we left the courtroom, you'd walk out and they'd have the cameras and everything set up, and you'd answer the questions. And I discovered that if you go out and you answer the questions, 
they don't call you. <laughs> yep. They've got what they have to, to meet the deadlines. Re- write their story. And write their stories. And that's something I learned in that case. It's helpful to just do it this way because then you don't get your office is not being inundated with calls because people are trying to meet deadlines and things of that nature. That's they were there. They heard it. And that was information it. Information is more consistent because you're telling your Yeah, and, and you're answering it. And obviously there's some questions you can't answer, but I, I found out that they generally respect that. And that was a lesson regarding high publicity cases that maybe the best way to handle it is just do it in one shot, walk out, take their questions, and then they don't drive your receptionist nuts for the next 24 hours. Do you have recourse when you feel like the prosecutor is throwing information out to the world and thereby poisoning the potential jury pool and trying your client in, in the press? I have anything you I, do. I haven't. I haven't had had a lot of that, and I'm not. And I don't want to suggest that was true in this case involving the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of Illinois. When an indictment is returned on your client, there is the obligatory press release, and maybe there will be a a, a statement made by the prosecutor that shows up on the news or whatever else. You don't like to read, although it does happen at times that. They contacted, and the lawyer for your client had no comment. It creates this inference that you don't want. So you normally try to respond. Sometimes you can't. Each case is different. Did you handle the Hazelwood versus Kuhlmeyer case from I, uh, the I, No, I got hired after they lost in the Eighth Circuit. And so I wrote the cert petition and uh, wrote the briefs. In that case, the case was argued by the regular attorney for uh, for Hazelwood School District, who had tried the case below. And but it was an interesting case. I hadn't been that far removed from clerking at the Supreme Court that I could look at that case and say, "This one got this one has legs. I think they might be interested in this one." And filed the cert petition. Cert was granted. It was an interesting sort of argument in the sense that there are only eight justices because that was the time when Justice Powell had resigned and then there was this fight about his successor. And so there was only eight people on the bench. And uh, I remember counting noses and thinking, I can find four votes. I'm not sure where I'm going to find the fifth vote. And that fifth vote ended up being Justice Stevens. It's portrayed as... A student rights case, but I think, I, and it was, but what was significant about this is that case, the newspaper was part of a classroom exercise. A classroom produced the paper with a journalism teacher. And, and so to me, the question was, to what extent do you interpose a federal judge between the students and their teacher and the principal. There are different ways to teach journalism, and there might be some that are better than others, but ultimately that's an educational decision as opposed to a constitutional decision. And Hazelwood's been around now for 40-odd years, maybe I should say 35. I think it was right. And it wasn't about how you teach journalism. It's up to the educators to decide how you teach journalism. What it was about is to what extent are you going to have federal judges telling teachers and administrators, how do you teach journalism? And I think that is what resonated with the court. 
that this was ultimately an educational decision. And you can decide as a journalism teacher, as a school district, to have a very laissez-faire kind of attitude about what you're going to allow to be published. Or you can live like every real journalist in the world and have an editorial authority that says, okay, we're going to allow this, but we're not going to allow that. That's the real world. That's real journalism. So uh, it was a very interesting case, and and it was I enjoyed having the opportunity to get involved in it. Several years ago, we sent out a survey to a number of lawyers with the local bar, and uh, and you answered. And one of those questions was, "What inspired you to become a lawyer?" And I was wondering if you could share that with our. Sure, I grew up. I didn't know any lawyers. I'm trying to think when was the first time I met a lawyer, and it could have been law school. But I was the first in my family to go to college, and so when you're the first, the emphasis is on getting a good-paying job. And my dad was a Mr. Wizard. He, I always referred to him as the best inductive mind I ever met. He could play with things and figure out how they worked, and he was part of that generation that could do anything. They'd fix cars, they'd install kitchens, they did it all. And to the day my dad passed away, I was convinced he could fix anything. And so it was natural to gravitate towards engineering and electrical engineering in, in, in particular. In fact, so strong that I'm the oldest of five. Four of us have electrical engineering degrees. Wow. None of us are practicing engineers, but it was all my father's influence in that regard. And then my junior year, I went to Missouri Boys State, and they had a sort of mock trial program where you could, they had a fake bar exam that you would take and then pass, and then you'd get involved. And I liked it. I liked the advocacy. I liked marshalling arguments. I thought, hey, this is interesting. And I've always been interested in history, so I was certainly aware of the role lawyers have played in this country's history, one I, I very much admire. So I got in the back of my mind, maybe I want to go to law school. I and mean, it's an aspect of the practice I still enjoy. Marshalling the facts, marshalling arguments. I think to some extent, the quality of advocacy it depends upon how hard the lawyer is willing to think about a problem. But you can always come up with a legal argument, throw down a couple of citations, and state a conclusion. But I, I think the best advocates are those who think about the problem and and think about the jurisprudential and the policy reasons for the legal proposition that, that you're trying to advocate, and then marshal your facts around those cons- jurisprudential considerations and policy implications, because I, judges are concerned about precedent, but they're also concerned about the consequences of their decisions. And they're concerned with the logic that supports those decisions. And I think the lawyer who addresses those concerns more often than not prevails on the argument. And so I just liked the process. And I liked the analysis. And I liked the advocacy. And I still do to this day. Like I said, if I could be locked up in a room and just spend all my time working on a particular brief or putting together a presentation for the court or a trial, those are the aspects of the practice that I enjoy. Sometimes being pulled from one thing to another and putting out this fire, the other one still smoke, 
small sure, group is, yeah. is one of the more frustrating aspects. What advice would you consider the most important to offer a young lawyer today? Take pride in what you do. I talked about my father who, you know, who did these things or who could fix anything. He just took a lot of pride in what he did. He had this philosophy, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And I think as a lawyer, it's important to take pride in what you do. A good reputation is hard to gain. It's easy to lose. But you want your name associated with quality. I know we talk about this in our firm. You want to have the kind of reputation that a judge knows that a brief or argument will be good before you ever give it because you have that kind of reputation and you don't want to lose it. And I think that that credibility really buys you success at the margin when a case could go either way. And I think the judge looks at it and says, they're good. And, uh, and maybe in the back of mind, they say they're also more likely to be able to sell this position on appeal. And, but take pride in what you do. I think that's true for any profession. But with all of the responsibility and ethical constraints that come with being a lawyer, I don't think there's a better guiding star than being proud of what you do and trying to do it to the best of your ability. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, for taking time out of your schedule to sit for two episodes. Yeah, Bob, thank you very much. This was uh, wonderful. I'm going to I'm gonna not require, but request each of the lawyers here actually to listen to the podcast. This was great advice. Well, thank you. I hope that it met your guys' expectations. And then some, and then some. It was terrific. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you guys for inviting me. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'm John Simon. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning. 